Hi, and welcome to MC Podcast number four. Today in studio, we had Scott Harris, our national sales manager, and guest call in, Todd Martin from IPSA. We talked about non-GMO trends in the industry. We also had a little talk about hybrid placement, and then we talked about seed spacing. Todd also spoke about independent seed corn companies and their viability in the market that we've had. So hope that you enjoy uh, today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for joining us again. This is uh, Master's Choice Podcast, Episode 4. Thanks for being with us today. Hope that you have enjoyed some of the other podcasts that we've done. So kicking right off today, we have uh, Scott Harris, our National Sales Manager, with us today. Hey, welcome, Scott. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Doing good. Hey, I'm glad that you uh, were in the office today. I know that you've been gone quite a bit here lately, and so just kind of catch us up on where all you've been and what's been going on out and about. Yeah, it's actually nice to be back here. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily miss any of you, but it's still nice to be back. Um, No, it's not true. I do miss you guys, but it's so I actually totaled it up last night, and uh, it looks like it's been about actually 35 days uh, from Jan- like January 3rd through March 17th was 35 days of travel for me. So if you do the math based on work days, that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot of, that's a lot of days gone, a lot of days away from the house. But it, you know, it's, it's been some really good stuff that we've got to do. Um, uh, we've been out, you know, I've got to go as far west as California, um, as far east as New York, Pennsylvania, um, been it's not all as over far, the place. It's well, not as far east not as you've true. been. I have been over overseas. Yes. Been over in Germany. Yes. Um, I had a terrible travel companion for that, but um, you deal with it, you know. Yeah, you, I, you I get, get it. I get it. I, I, I was in the same boat with you. You had a you terrible know, travel companion. Terrible <laughs> travel companion right. also yeah. as, uh, as we were in Germany. So, so interesting, as you've, as you've traveled around, as you've uh, been across, you know, the country, so to speak, and then even in other parts of, of the world— what are what are some trends that you are noticing in agriculture that maybe somebody who just lives in the Midwest is isn't necessarily seeing as something going on in in agriculture broadly? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things and the hot topic item right now is non-GMO. Okay. You know, okay. Um, what's going to happen? And you know, the, the the biggest thing for me, Mark, and and maybe you've seen this too recently is that it seemed like even when I first started, and I've been at Master's Choice, what has it been, five and a half years now? It's five and a half years for both of us. We started about three weeks apart. Yep. So um, when I first started, non-GMO was almost emotional more than it was anything. You know, it was emotional. It was people that wanted non-GMO because they just didn't, you know, that's what their heart was and they believed in it, right? Where now it's, there's a trend happening where it's, it is emotional for some people, but there's a financial aspect too. Um, and there, there's more to it now than what there used to be. Right. So are you seeing people uh, transition more to non-GMO crops? Is it people wanting more non-GMO foodstuffs? I mean, where, where are you seeing the, the push or the pull really come from? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's everything. Um, it's, uh, you, you're hearing it from non-ag people. You're hearing it from ag people. Um, there are farms that literally... Um, because of conventional farming practices feel like they're in a better situation by transitioning to non-GMO, not just financially, but for their farm future. 
Um, and then there's plenty of people we deal with that are doing both. Sure. And, and so when, when you say that somebody is moving towards non-GMO, what exactly, what part of their farm are, are they really dealing with? I mean, when we talk about GMOs, what are we really, what are we really talking about? Right. So I think that the biggest thing is, that, you know, there is a, there's a concept at least of sustainability. They feel like they, they can be more sustainable um, with a non-GMO system. A lot of people do. Okay. Um, and so with, with non-GMO, we're really talking about the integrated traits into, into corn, a, a herbicide tolerance, an insect uh, trait where, where it's an insect resistance. So in the industry, we've bred these things or we've actually inserted these genes into different plants, beans and corn and other things so that we can spray them with the herbicides and it doesn't kill the, 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 the plant or the right. corn or the, or the beans. And so we see people that are transitioning away from that where they are, they're saying, I want to buy seed that doesn't have these inserted traits in them. Correct. Right. Is that correct? What, okay. Yep. And, and really for us, we see that because guys are doing that because they want to feed those crops right. to the animals. Right? right. And so one, I think one of the misconceptions that I see, Scott, is that all meat, all eggs, all um, milk, by nature, is is GMO free. Right. Okay. If I eat no, no matter what I feed that animal, I can't detect any GMOs in there. Right. So really, what we're talking about is that guys are 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 transitioning to to that kind of feed. What are the obstacles of transitioning a farm to a non-GMO type seed? Right. So I think one of the biggest things that the, the misconception out there is that it's really difficult uh, to to make that transition. Now, I am not a farmer. I want to make that very clear. You know, I don't have thousands of acres that I'm sitting there trying to do this with. But from other farmers that I've met with, <clears throat> the transition in itself is it, it's not as difficult as some people try to make it. But yet it is different. Um, there's different chemicals you're going to use. I mean, your, your whole philosophy, if you're doing uh, cover crops, there's a big change in how you're going to burn those down. You know, there's just, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But it's, it's not, um, for a lot of guys, it's going back to the way they farmed, you know, before. I mean, you know, GMOs have only been around since, what, 97, 98, yeah, somewhere yeah. in that range, mid, right? Mid to early 90s. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's that it's that concept of, how do I make this transition, but yet not take a step back? Right. 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 So that's the biggest fear for farms. It's, you know, <clears throat> I think farms tend to get demonized a little bit. Um, they think, you know, they're just, they just want the easy way out. Well, that's not it at all. This is the way the industry is trended. It made sense to do this, right? So um, as they begin to try to make this transition into GMOs and then, this is how they set their farm up. Well, it's not easy to just start tomorrow and change that system completely. Right. And, and so it's more about management practices, It is. Correct? It's managing more than anything, Mark. It's, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a genetic issue there. You know, the, the companies tend to focus, more companies tend to focus on GMOs. So that's where the genetics are going and where the industry is going. So to be a part of that and get what you feel is the best, 
that's where you're going to take your farm. Yeah. And, and I think the, uh, if I remember the statistics correctly, something like 92% of the corn planted in the United States has some kind of genetic modification to it. Well, and, and maybe we even ought to be careful of how we use that term genetic modification, right. because we've been genetically modifying, uh, plants, domestic plants, for, for thousands of years. Anytime that I select for a certain trait, I'm genetically modifying that, So or, or a hybrid is genetically modifying. So really, it's it's that inserted, that transgenic trait that I have taken right. from another organiz, uh, organism and put into uh, the corn plant or the bean plant or something like that. That's really what we're talking about when we when we use this kind of generic term, uh, GMO, a genetically modified organism. Although if we really looked at the broad uh, definition of that, any any current production plant that we have is is somewhat genetically right. modified because of the way that we've bred and selected for those things. Yeah, just the hybrid system itself is. A, I mean, it's a modification, basically. You know. Yep. So I, yeah, I completely agree. It's it's you know the biggest thing that that is that is tough in this industry to me is that there's there's not great communication from from both sides in my yeah. opinion yeah. you know and I'm I'm speaking from myself here um, that I, I've you know I, I talk to people that are very pro GMO I talk to people that are very pro non GMO and there is a disconnect there where n- neither side is really listening uh, to the other side and you know and 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 it's good and it's not going to happen until we talk about it and have th- you know things like this and talk about these things and you know what's your challenges well you know why can't you do this and i and i think probably sitting down and really thinking through it with and and i mean when i say an open mind i don't mean like open mind like okay i'm going to let you convince me but open mind of let me understand what this means right. to you let me understand how this works or and I think there's too much of this uh, back and forth. I want to convince you that my way is the right way. But it is interesting that from the consumers, we are seeing this uh, this pull towards more of more of non-GMO type products. Whether that's whether that's emotional, whether that's thought out, whether that's just wanting to know what's in my food. Right. We are seeing the consumers demand that more. Absolutely. So to speak. How do you how do you think that the non-GMO movement is going to affect? And now this is I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. Okay. Okay. And oh, I want I, you to, dang it, I I left that at home. Well, uh, I'm I'm sure you maybe done, somebody can grab it. <laughs> somebody yeah. grab it for you. So, how, how do you think that this the non-GMO movement is going to affect the or, organic movement? How how do you see that? We could be right or wrong, pure speculation, but just in in your opinion. You know, I think that the there's a couple different factors there. Uh, one is that the um, they're two different things, right? Very much Non-GMO so. and organic are two different things, and they get lumped together they all do. the time, and they are not the same thing, um, you know. And so, like it or not, and I don't care what where you stand on it, it's happening, you know. This non-GMO movement is happening. And so, we need to make sure that we're doing everything, and I say we as in the industry, the ag industry, we might have to peel back the curtain a little more and let people see what's going on. Right. And give them an understanding. Right. Because isn't that the biggest thing is education. Yeah. You know, I think I think what's going to determine how far this is going to go, honestly, Mark, is who does the burden fall on to educate people? You know what I'm you know what I'm saying by that? In other words, does it fall on the farmer? Does it fall on, you know, the on science? Does it fall on the consumer to educate themselves? 
you know, who does the burden fall on? So I think it's going to fall on all of us. You know, the consumer right now, he 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 doesn't trust the company. He doesn't trust the the man, the, the right. big guy, right? Uh, is afraid that they're lying to him. Afraid that they're just in it for a buck. I I think that part of this is going to fall on the farmer, but that means the farmer is going to have to be educated. And, and I think that there is, I think that there is a sense uh, out. In um, and especially in, in areas that are not rural, especially in, in very urban areas or in the city, that that they don't really understand who the farmer is today. You know, right. we we grew up uh, singing Old MacDonald, and some somehow we get this picture in our head of this guy who's in an open cab tractor, yep. you know, raking hay in his overalls and his straw hat, and that's kind of the picture that we had. But if we really got out and met some of these guys and really tried to understand uh, their challenges, and they could communicate that. And, and unfortunately, we have really kind of separated the guy who is uh, the consumer from the guy who's growing the food and, and doing all of those things. And so I think it's going to have to be kind of a, a, a conglomeration of everybody getting together and, and talking through that with, with an open mind of, okay, I'm, I may not be 100% right. Show me where I'm not. And, and, and let me listen to you. Let me hear your story. And, yeah. and those kinds of things. No, I, I, I see that for sure. So just before we leave this topic real quick, uh, what, are, what, are some, what are some basic differences that you, you kind of set this up? What are some basic differences between uh, non-GMO and, and organic? What, what, are, what are some of the basic differences between those two things? Right. So the, the biggest thing that I think people need to understand is that from a non-GMO standpoint, you still use chemicals. Right, so you're still spraying your crops. That um, you're still using uh, a lot of herbicides that you're very familiar with, especially you know in the early stages of burn down when you're cleaning up the field to get ready to plant. You know you're using the same stuff that yeah. people in a in a traditional conventional system is using. Yeah, yeah, right? it, it's you can still spray glyphosate on things. Absolutely, as, you just, as a burn down, you can't spray it on the plant themselves. Right, but you can still you can still pl- spray that to right. clean up fields and ditch rows and absolutely and everything. So, you know, from an organic standpoint, you can't, right? So there's, a, there's much more manual, intensive labor that goes into the organic side. You know, you have cultivating, um, you know, depending on your size, obviously, there, right. there's a whole lot more management that goes into it. Um, <clears throat> the way it's grown also, you know, for, from a hybrid standpoint, from a production standpoint, uh, on the organic side, it has to be a certified organic field um, that, <clears throat> again, is not using chemicals, things like that, you know, where... From a non-GMO side, you can you can use a different practice and be grown in a different way. Um, just there's a lot of similarities, but they're not the same thing. And I think they really get lumped together a lot. I, I would ag- I would agree with you on that. I would agree with you on that. I, I think that I think that there is a lot of education to be done there, and I think there's a lot of understanding that needs to be done. And unfortunately, I think sometimes we, we just don't want it. We've made a decision and we said, this is what we're going to do. And I, and I think that, um, I, I think that there's room at the table for, for all of those guys. I think there's room at the table for the organic guy who, and there's room at the table for the non-GMO guy. And there's room at the table for the guy who's going to use um, genetically modified crops. I, I think there's room for all of us at the table for all of those things. And so... One of the other topics, uh, Scott, that I wanted to make sure that we hit today is that, is that we were looking at was that as you're out and about, okay, you you see different farms, you see different places, different soil types, different management practices. 
how do you how how important is hybrid placement and kind of what is your thought process as you go through hybrid placement on on a certain farm so one of the things that I love most about my job is I like we talked about in the beginning, Mark, is I get to go to a lot of different parts of the country. Yeah. You know, I get to go to California, I get to go to South Dakota, Florida, East Coast. I mean, one of the challenges is that I have to go to a lot of different parts of the country. Um and, and everything's so different. But there are certain principles that don't change no matter what part of the country you're in. And that's what I always tell guys, you know, anytime we go into a new territory, um, I hear the same things. You know, it's like, well, you just you don't know what it's like here. You know, it's it's different here. I'm like, yeah, it's different, but it's the same. You know, <laughs> and so it's just funny how that basically when I'm looking at hybrid placement and I'm looking at you know what we want to do, there's some obviously main things that I think you've got to be looking at. First of all, you're going to start off, of course, with GDUs. You know, what kind of growing units do you need? So you know, translate that to RM, relative maturity, whatever you want to, but really it comes down to GDUs. You know, how much, how many GDUs do you get in your area? What do you want to grow? GDU being Growing is it degree units? Yeah. Growing, you know. So how much heat? Right, how much heat? How, how many how heat much units heat? are you getting? Yeah. Right. How, how much? How much heat are you getting to be able to grow that crop? Right. Absolutely. So you know, so you're looking at GDUs. Soil type is a big thing. Okay. You know, um, you know, here in Southern Illinois, you've got a field here that is, you know, clay loam versus, you know, the field across the road is, you know, more sandy. You know, I yep. mean, it, it, so you know, you know as well as I do. Half of it can be different here in Southern Illinois. So getting an understanding of that is so important when it comes to hybrid placement. So why, why, is, that, why is that important? Because I want to make sure, you know, I think the biggest thing is that it comes down to how are the, how's the fertilizer going to move through the soil? You know, do I need to put a more of a workhorse type hybrid? Do I need to put something that, you know, this, this soil is great. It's got great potential. It's nutrient uptake is high. So I'm going to put something that maybe is a little bit more racehorse type, right? So, um <clears throat> Just understanding, you know, how moisture is going to do in the soil. And moisture is probably the biggest factor there to me as much as anything is can it hold moisture? Is it a dry soil? So what, so what you're saying is that we have, and, and not just we as master's choice, but, but different corn plants, different corn hybrids uh, are uh, grow different, uh, react different to, to different soil types. And knowing the characteristics of that hybrid and putting it in the right place is, is essential for, for success, correct? Yep. Yeah, this, you know, one of the things that I think that, that ag people, unfortunately, don't do a great job with is getting a good understanding of a soil profile of each farm. You know, many, too many times, unfortunately, we walk onto a farm, we have a hybrid in mind, and just put that thing wherever you want. Right. Instead of saying, you know, what do you have? Where is this going to go? You know, where are you going to put this? And give me an understanding of what you're going to do with this so I can make sure I'm recommending the right hybrid. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I as the uh, nutritional research director, I have certain hybrids that nutritionally are are my favorite, you know, and um, and, you know, if I go on the farm and some guy says, you know, what's you know, what hybrid should I plant? You know, I may rattle off a number, but it may not fit his soil type and it's going to fall down. And then and then he's going to be aggravated like me. He's going to be on me like a spider monkey. And, uh, you know, but but knowing those soil types, knowing those soil types and knowing how that hybrid reacts on those different types of um environments is is essential so soil type is a, is one aspect are there any other aspects so you know you're going to look at soil type obviously the water situation is it a 
uh, irrigated? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a mm -hmm. flood irrigation? Is it drip irrigation? What are we dealing with? Is it dry land? You know, I would say, you know, now we're getting, you know, before I, when I first started, very little ground that we dealt with was irrigated. Right. Because um, we were mostly right here in the Midwest, you know, primarily in some of the East, there's just not a ton of it. Now that we've moved more West and South and I mean, it's the opposite. Almost everything we deal with now is irrigated. So I need an understanding of that to be able to know, and not just irrigation, what type of irrigation is important. Um, because, you know, it, there's a, um, there's each plant, you know, as well as I do, each plant responds differently to the type of irrigation. Doesn't mean it won't work, yeah. right? But yeah. it just, I need to know. We, you know? Yeah, they give it the best chances for success. Yeah. Does management, and, and maybe even this, if I'm, if you're on an organic farm, are you going to maybe recommend a little bit different hybrid than you would on a non-GMO farm or Absolutely. even even a even a conventional or so to speak farm? Absolutely. There is a there's just such a big difference in when it comes to management when and, and the three of those are so different and they're all three completely different, right? <clears throat> I know that from an organic standpoint, and I'm not speaking for every organic farm, but many of them, it's a, it's a much tougher environment. You know, they can't use some of the same things that we, like we talked about earlier, that the conventional guys get into use. So we need to make sure we're using hybrids that are going to be able to withstand those challenges a little bit more. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that we have to look at is, you know, what's your goal? You know, there is just too much of hybrid placement and recommendation without really even knowing what a guy's goal is. Yeah, you know, I would agree. Um, you know, what's your end use? What yeah. are you going to use this for? Yeah. You know, um, are you using silage? Are you doing high moisture corn? Are you using dry grain? What's your goal here, right? And not just what's your yield goal, you know. That's, yeah, sure, yield goal is definitely an under, but what's your nutritional goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. You know, how many, how many different farms do we go on that, that one farm we're at, man, I need butterfat. Yeah. You know? And yeah. then the next guy says, I don't care about butterfat. I need, you know. I just need, I just need more I need milk. milk. Yeah. I need, I need, I need, I want to overflow my tank. Absolutely. Right? I was actually kind of thinking through this. Um, I was in Wisconsin a few weeks ago, and, and we were having a series of meetings, and one of, the, one of the sales guys there was really kind of talking to those guys about, hey, if you want to go for higher quality, you know, maybe we need to look at some different hybrids for your place. If you've got a huge stockpile, maybe we can back down some populations, get a get a really good high feeding uh, value type hybrid on your place. Maybe since you've got enough silage, enough inventory, let's go for let's go for for quality, and that would affect the way that because of his in use, because of his inventories, that may affect the hybrid that we put on that place. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's. There's just there's not enough conversation happening in that of that topic in my opinion, Mark. Is that they, and, and I'm not I'm not blaming the seed guy. Yeah. You know, he's 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 trying to get in the farm, get them some corn, and move on. But there's just not enough talk about what's your goal here. What are you trying to? Accomplish? What's your goal? What field is this hybrid going in? Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes we look at the farm as a whole unit, and we really we need to talk about this. Maybe even this acre, right, or, or yep. this this field, and what's it going, and what are you going to do with it, and what are your plans, and what are your goals, and, and being able to sit down and, and plan through some of that space. Right, and then you know one of the other things that people have to think about too with this market is traits. You know, what do you need? Yeah. Now, what do you want? What do you need? What do you need? You know, um, there. I mean, the trait market is. I mean, think about what's been accomplished in the trait market in you know the sh really short amount of time that yeah. they've been out. Yeah. You know. We now have, you know, multiple uh, modes of action that we can combat uh, different, oh, so many different insects. 
Um, and, and it's really impressive what, what companies have been able to bring out from a trait standpoint, you know, when it comes down to it. The, but there's just, I think there's too much of putting people putting out and not even knowing what they're putting out. Right. You know, right. how many times, Mark, have you walked on a farm and, well, what kind of trace do you use? Um, corn borer. What else? I, I don't know. You know, it's yeah. just. Yeah, whatever my, whatever no my, idea seed, what whatever my seed guy sold. Yeah, them. whatever the guy said. Yeah. Yeah, they have no idea what they're planning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Scott, we're going to bring in uh, kind of on the phone here in just a second, uh, Todd Martin from, uh. from IPSA. And so we're going we're gonna to make that call. We're going to bring him in, and we'll introduce him here in a second, okay? Good. All right. Hey, Todd, we've got you on the phone now. This is Todd Martin, the executive director of IPSA. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Well, Mark, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Good deal. Hey, Todd, tell us a little bit, uh, kind of briefly, uh, define or explain what IPSA is for us. Sure. Uh, the Independent Professional Seed Association, also known as as IPSA was founded in 1989. Currently, we have uh, 108 independently owned seed companies throughout uh, the country, predominantly in the Midwest. I like to say I go up and down the central time zone a lot. And another 140 associated businesses as associate members. We're currently represented in 25 states, but we do consider ourselves national. And uh, with that 108 seed companies comes uh, approximately 20% of the U.S. corn seed sales and 22% of the U.S. soybean sales. So, you know, solidly fifth of the, a fifth of the market is uh, sold uh, to farmers by independent seed companies. Good. Hey, real quick, just kind of uh, explain what an independent seed company is for us, Todd. You know, that's a really good question. Our definition is, uh, I think, pretty broad, but it is a you know, independently, one person owned, family owned, sole proprietorship, or uh, does come into partnerships, or we even define it as a closely held cooperative in some cases. That doesn't mean like the local co-op, uh, you know, people might go down and buy their crop protection or seed from, but a, uh, you know, closely held seed uh, producing and selling cooperative. And, you know, independents are those that are involved in the production and or sale of See. Good, good yeah. deal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Todd. This is Scott. Um, so, kind of start us off here. Let's let's talk about what what we've been hearing, and I would like to know what your thoughts are on this. Is one of the biggest things that people are concerned about is the mergers that are happening. You know, you have uh, Dow and uh, Dupont, Dupont, and you know all these you know Kim China and Syngenta. You have all these mergers that are going on. Um, Bayer Monsanto, you know, so these are all hot topics. Um, people are concerned. Is that what you're hearing? Or are people happy? Are people worried? Are they thrilled about it? What What are you hearing? I would like you to, to talk about it from two things, if you could, from from the company standpoint. What are, what are companies thinking? And what are people thinking? What are you hearing from, from farmers? Well, you know, Scott, it's a really good question. I kind of, I, my view currently is, is that the ag consolidation is, uh, is a big challenge. This is going to be one of the uh, most enduring things that happens for big agriculture from this point going forward, and we'll look back at this, I, I believe, even a decade from now and think that this, is, this was one of those key turning points. You know, yeah, I, I guess to understand everything that's going on in the ag, I always want to look back a little bit and think about, you know, a brief history of time, if you will. 
just to get good grounding because you know as consolidation has come forward this is not the first time we've seen it it's uh, the most dramatic time that we've seen it in my opinion but if we go all the way back to 1929 we saw a couple of things that started happening all the way back then and you know that was really the rise of hybrid corn and in 29 only one half of one percent of the u.s corn market was hybrid corn the rest of it was varietal corn now you move forward 11 years later and the number of high, or the amount of hybrid corn in the market was a hundred percent it had taken the market by storm then you saw some things like synthetic fertilizers come in in world war ii and then the rise of the pesticide products notably atrazine uh, in the late 40s and 50s, and the reason these three things are important is they gave rise to what we call big business agriculture. You know, they were important components where we saw the rise of large companies like back in the day, J.R. Geige, Seba, uh, Sandoz, Monsanto came in, and that's where those companies really got their foothold in agriculture, and that was in the 40s and 50s, and so you saw a change as Companies were bought up and strategies changed. Big oil came in. Standard oil became a part of it in the 60s. Then we had pharmaceutical firms that started rising up. You saw the big pushes like with Bayer and uh, other pharmaceutical companies. And then you started seeing combinations when Seba and Geige went together. That was a big issue. And that happened all the way back in 1970. Then the rise of the life sciences companies came in the late 80s and 90s. And you saw another major merger in between Sebagagi at that time and Sandoz to form Novartis as a life sciences company. And several companies started following behind that. But then, of course, biotechnology came in in 1995. And that, with the advent of Roundup Ready soybeans and BT corn and then later Roundup Ready cotton and BT cotton, that was where you started to see big numbers of consolidations go together with the companies. For, for people that were around then and remember, and I remember it very well, you know, we were looking at what we considered were 11 very large, very successful multinational companies in agriculture. Well, in a few short years, it was down to about six. And I mean, the names that were out there that you thought you would never lose were names like American Cyanamide that today is not there. Sebagagi today is not there. So, you know, there has been consolidation all the way along the lines. What has given, you know, I think more momentum here is we saw a consolidation of 11 companies down to six large companies and then some smaller companies that were out there in the crop protection side. But now in the seed industry, where these companies have been gathering up for the last several years since 96, since biotechnology came in, we're now looking at a piece where we're going to have six go to three, potentially. And yes, that, that in my mind, has not only independent seed companies concerned, and rightly so, it also has growers concerned. And you can see this even in Washington, where, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, back a couple of months ago, under the uh, leadership of Senator Grassley, had a hearing on ag consolidation. You've had three major issues that have emerged between Dow DuPont last year, then ChemChina and Syngenta uh, started coming together, and then the big one, uh, the bigger one, which was Monsanto and Bayer, which that's the one that uh, 
people seem to be focusing on right now, even though on the big scale of total companies, Dow DuPont, you know, with all their different pieces, is a bigger acquisition, bigger merger than the Monsanto Bear pieces. But in ag, Monsanto Bear is the giant in the room right now. Hey, Todd. So, yes, people are concerned. Todd, explain to us just real quick, and, and maybe this is pure speculation. Maybe it's something that, that you know or that you've heard. What is the driving force behind the consolidations? It's a good question, and I think from my perspective, it's, it's going to be speculation. But I think that we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in innovation and a very large rise in the expense of innovation. Now, those, you know, big words that everybody likes to throw around in the corporation, put it simply said, it's harder to find a product to bring to market, and it costs a lot more money to bring a product to market. You know, we've, we've sat here and we've watched uh, biotechnology, and I can speak directly about Syngenta with their AgriSure Viptera product and their AgriSure Duracade product that has taken long times to get registered on the market, primarily because of foreign registrations, not because of slowdowns in the United States. But that impact has created, you know, a longer path to market. More money is spent. There's less time to get uh, products in the pipeline to actually be sold and see a return on it. So expenses are going up, revenues are going down. And it's not only on biotechnology products that you're seeing that on. You're seeing that in crop protection products as well, where, you know, you're seeing a lot less new AIs, new formative AIs that are coming out. And, in fact, we seem to be, you know, going back to the future when you start considering that, you know, Dow's enlist technology is going back to a 2,4-D, which is old technology, to be able to come to market with new herbicide um, strength to combat resistance. Montano's Extend technology, the dicamba molecule, has been around for a very long time, and of course, it's being brought back now again to try and manage some of the resistance. And part of that is we're not seeing new modes of action and new AIs introduced into the marketplace. They're harder to find, and they're more expensive to develop, and there's a longer path to market than there's ever been before because of regulatory hurdles. So it's just a factor of costs are going up, and products are aging, and we need more uh, more things out there, and companies are seeing that their R&D costs are very expensive, and there is cost savings going in, growing and merging. Right. Hey, Todd, so so you, you've taught, you've done a really good job of explaining, you know, from an overall what this looks like from the company standpoint. Let's talk about the farmer. You know, what, how, what positives, negatives, we, you know, we want you to just be, you know, we, we don't necessarily want just a, a one-sided view of it, but what, what is this going to mean for a farmer? Does, is it going to change anything for the farm? Well, it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, you can talk a little bit out of both sides of your mouth here and sound like you don't know which, uh, which way you really think is going to go because there are some opportunities here um, that represent value to the farmers and value to independent seed companies. One of the things that I have to say that I think is exciting is that as Dow and DuPont go together, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about independent seed company potential benefits, and then that will also lend its way to uh, farmer benefits as well. When you see Dow and DuPont go together, what you see is a company like Dow that's had a strong history of out-licensing and a strong um, character of out-licensing their traits in germplasm. And you see Pioneer, who's not really had a vehicle, Pioneer from DuPont, to out-license their germplasm. So 
this has been sold by the Pioneer brand, but the innovations available to be able to utilize in the marketplace by other companies have not been available because of contract restrictions. We could see, we could see an opportunity come with a combination of Dow and DuPont where Pioneer were to inject germplasm into Dow's already strong out-licensing vehicle, and then thereby we see new products coming into the marketplace that independent seed companies haven't seen before, and that means that they come back down into the farm where independent seed companies are selling their farmer customers, and so you see a rise of a whole new host of products coming in. You can even take that a step further to say that in some quarters, if we really had it the way that would be nice, then you know there would be pioneer males and females that would come out and be able to be combined with males and females from other companies that have not been done previously, and maybe we would see some really new innovative products that would drive yield. So there are some really exciting potentials on one side of it if you consider it. Right. On the now, now on the other side, the other side is is that it could go a different direction. The market could become more restrictive, which means that you would see independents have to line up with, for instance, a Dow DuPont provider or a Monsanto Bear provider or a Syngenta Kim China provider, if all those mergers uh, are consummated, which really would not be much more innovative than it is right now. And, you know, you could potentially see independents having to become more of smaller brands of larger companies, if you will, which I don't think is probably the best way forward and certainly hope that doesn't happen. So there are positives and negatives both ways depending on how you look at it right. and how it ultimately comes down. Right. I think uh, that's a great way to say it, Todd. And I think we're uh, we're running running out of time, looks like. So uh, we're going to wrap this up. I guess in ending, you know, one of the things that I've heard, and you, you can confirm or deny this, um, is, you know, we get the questions, well, you know, independents are going to go away. They're all going to be gone. You know, what's going to happen to all the independents? Biggest advice I have, if you're if you're pro-independent companies, keep buying from them. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how they're going to stay in business is if people continue to use them and, and, and use that. Would you, you know, quickly, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think you've nailed it. I think independents have been strong for the last several years and will continue to be strong as long as farmers buy from them. And we see that farmers like the experience they get with independent seed companies. Right. My saying, I'll close on this, my saying is, Independent seed companies learned how to deal with people going to Sunday school, not business school. Absolutely. And I think that says a lot. Yep, absolutely. Well, Todd, thanks a lot for uh, taking some time out of your morning. And uh, we are very proud and happy to be members of IPSA. Um, you guys do a lot for independent companies, and um, you take us to really cool places like San Diego uh, for the convention. And so uh, I definitely appreciative of that. But uh, it, you guys do a lot for the for the industry, and I, I think it's important um, important piece of the ag industry that I think is going to become bigger. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to become a bigger part of what we do. So, Todd, thank you so much for taking your time out of the, uh, taking time out of your morning and uh, visiting with us. And we look forward to uh, continuing that relationship. And um, if there if somebody does have questions about independent companies, I assume they there is does IPSA have a website for the public or we absolutely do. They can reach us at uh, ipseed.org and got all our contact information, emails, telephone numbers, and they can give us a call and. We can help, even help direct uh, growers to their nearest uh, 
independent seed company or a couple of them to give them some choices. Well, just remember, we're nationwide, Todd, so we're near everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, All right. Well, thanks, Todd. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So uh, we, we do want to thank Todd for joining us today and uh, how informative that was. And, and just a, a look at that uh, independent seed or that seed producer, that independent guy who's out there. Who, who, who we are. We, we are an independent seed company. And uh, so it was, it's good to know that there's an organization of those guys that, that are there to help promote and, and, and protect them. So, Scott, uh, one, one thing that, that I really kind of want to end with today and that I, I want you to kind of think through real quick is it's getting close to planting time okay if it was dried up here in uh in southern illinois right now there would be guys planting i i I have friends who are chomping at the bit so to speak so so as it's getting close to planting time what is what is one aspect of planting that you can think of that can really affect the yield and the quality of uh, of of the crop at the end of the year what what's one aspect right the i think the one aspect that is just what's crazy is it's one of the biggest aspects but it's one of the most ignored aspects is seed spacing i mean seed spacing is so important you know you know depth is important fertilizer is important these are all things that you have to have yeah. but seed spacing gets ignored right um, and you know it's it, it's population you know, that's what that's what people talk about. People talk about population, but what does it really come down to? Yeah, it really kind of comes down to seed spacing. Absolutely. You know, how many plants in the field is going to determine how far apart they they are. Absolutely. And, and how far how far apart they are can can really affect you know yield and quality. If I get if I get plants that are that are crammed together, okay. If I get if I get those plants that are that are crammed together, I, I've negatively affected yield and quality. So what, 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 is, what is your kind of recommendation? What are, what are we really looking for when we're looking at seed spacing and population? Right. So I, I don't care as, you know, like we've kind of we've led up to this, but I don't care as much about how, much, how many plants you want to put out as much as I do is how far apart are they. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, you know, so many different row types. You know, you got 15, 30, 20, 24, I think some yeah. guys plan. I mean, there's so many different row types. Fine. That's great. But you need to make sure you're at, you know, that seven, six and a half, seven inch spacing um, when all said and done um, to allow that plant to do what it wants to do. So if I'm if I'm planting at um, at on 30 inch rows, OK, where does that typically leave my my population need to need to kind of be? Right. So, I mean, you know, we've got a seed spacing chart that we use. You know, on a on a thirty inch row, you're going to be around thirty thousand population for seven inches. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, and you can Google it. You can literally just Google seed spacing chart, um, and it'll take you. It'll give you a bunch of different ones that you can look at, and just look at it. Take you know, take a few minutes and look at it. So as as he is planting, okay, and and he said, okay, I I, I want seven inch seed spacing, so I'm gonna or, or I want six inch seed spacing. He's gonna plant. You know, a little heavier. Maybe he's going to plant at thirty-four thousand or, or whatever, um, and says, I, I, w- "I want, I want good seed spacing." What's the one thing that besides, you know, okay, I've got to change the sprockets on the planter or or new planters now. I can just push a button. What's the one thing that he's really got to be careful about when he's putting that seed in the ground? Yeah, well, you, you mean from a spacing standpoint, yeah. or what, what is what is going to help ensure that he gets good seed spacing? Now? Okay, so it's you know. Not everybody has precision planning, right. right? We have a lot of guys still out there that don't. Uh, precision planning, obviously, is pretty idea because it will help with that a lot. 
but um, making sure you're getting the right seed for what you're trying to accomplish. Make sure your your planner is set up correctly. Make sure that your depth is right. Make sure that you're um, planning the right hybrid for the situation that you're trying to accomplish. Um, some hybrids can handle a little heavier population and, and handle a closer spacing, right? Where some need that space to accomplish what they want. But uh, speed, how fast you're drawing, how fast you're going, speed. Uh, is a big deal, man. We want, you know, it's the mindset, and you and I both have farmers that are friends, and uh, I, you know, they'll probably hear this and they'll probably get mad at me. But you guys got to slow down a little bit, you know. Absolutely, slow and, down. Yeah, from a farmer standpoint, I get it. You know, I know the weather's good today. I don't know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. You know, uh, the local news guy tells me it's going to be this or that, but I, I know it's good today. So my gosh, I'm going to get it in the ground. And I get that. I, I get it. But are you causing yourself harm by forcing it in the ground too fast? Absolutely. Absolutely. Scott, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate you. you being here, being part of this. Brought some really good information. And uh, and so I guess that I'll see you around the office for a few days. Yeah. And and then uh, and then off off again. Yep. So, I'm gonna be here um, for a while. Be okay. here for a few weeks. So good. you'll see to see this beautiful mug. Uh, a lot. Maybe I so. can be gone now. <laughs> Maybe you could. Uh, that'd be ideal. <laughs> that if, you could. Be ideal. if you could find some place to go, that'd be great. All right. Hey, thanks, Scott. Appreciate thanks. it. Hey, guys, we appreciate you joining us today for uh, MC Podcast Episode 4. Hope that you enjoyed it. And, uh, hey, we're, we are social, so you can look us up on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and uh, also uh, on the World Wide Web at seedcorn.com. We appreciate you guys joining us today.